Harvey, Jimmy Stewart, Harvey. Uh, anyway, great movie. And briefly, just as an introduction to the scriptures we'll be in this morning, um, <clears throat> how many here have seen the movie Harvey? Read, oh gosh, most of you. So you're, yeah, you know where, where I'm going with this. Uh, Harvey, the, the movie, the play gets its title from what's called a puka. And a puka is this mythical creature. This is a rabbit over six foot tall, invisible to most people. And when a puka's around, there's either mischief or good fortune or something they bring with them. And so Harvey's the rabbit. He's the puka. Jimmy Stewart is his good friend, Elwood P. Dowd. And Elwood Dowd is this uh, sort of, in some ways, exemplary character. He's apparently well-to-do because he doesn't work. He just sort of comes and goes as he pleases. And he's affable and he's agreeable. And if he meets you, he invites you to the local bar for a drink or he invites you home to supper. You know, there's nobody that's not a friend to Elwood. And even if he's not being treated well, he sort of lives above the fray. He's still agreeable. He's still gracious to everyone around him. And, you know, as this is going through in the movie, you're sort of asking what makes Elwood P. Dowd this gracious, caring person, this, this person who just seems selfless. He's there for you. And one of the great lines in the movie, in the theology, if you will, that Elwood Dowd has that shapes his life, he says at one point, comes from his mother, and this, this was the philosophy of life. In this life, Elwood, his mom told him, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. For years I was smart. I recommend pleasant. You may quote me. In Elwood's life, he had made a decision on what kind of a person he was going to be. He was going to be a pleasant person. He'd given up on being smart, being impressive, grabbing things for himself. He'd made a conscious decision that he would be pleasant instead of trying to be smart. And, you know, you don't have to be around very long to know that we as humans, in general, we tend to live small, mean in the, in the small sense, small, mean lives, grasping for significance. If you were here in Sunday school hour just a little bit before, this theme was raised there too, that we tend to live down, what I would say is down in life. And it's because we're fractured inside. We're not what we should be. And so sort of out of this broken state of things, we try to grab what we can in life. We try and grab significance in life in any of the ways we can. We're not what we should be. We're broken creatures. And so most of us, even as Christians, we live far below the plane of our calling. That Elwood Dowd's not the best example of life for a Christian, but he's not a bad place to start. Just being pleasant. Just being kind and considerate others would be a good place to start. Many of us don't even get there. And it's because we're trying to grasp what we can in life. We're living small lives instead of big lives. We're living self-centered lives instead of gracious giving lives. And sometimes it's just because two things that we'll look at here in just a minute. It's because we haven't made a decision to live life on a bigger field, a wider life, a deeper life, a more gracious life. It's also, I think, sometimes because we really don't know what is true of us and what we already possess. That is, we live like paupers because we don't know we're wealthy. That's a theme that comes out of the text this morning. God values generosity and kindness. Matter of fact, there's a proverb that says, what's desirable in a man 
is kindness. So when our girls were young, we told them, if you meet a young guy that you think you're interested in, if he's not kind, forget him. What's desirable in a man is kindness. This is a huge thing for God. It reflects God's own character. We're going to pick up in the short episode in Abram's life this morning in Genesis 13. And just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't heard this before, this closes that episode in Abram's life where he and Lot had come back from Egypt and they've got so much in the way of herds and livestock that they can't live together anymore. Uncle Abram and nephew Lot. They've got all these animals and the land can't sustain them living together. And so Abram has said to Lot, his nephew, his junior partner, if you will, he said, listen, uh, all the land's before you. Look around. You choose the place you'd like to go. You go that way and whatever area you go, I'll go the opposite way. And we talked about Lot's choice last time. Lot took what he thought was the best of the best, the the watered plain of the Jordan River Valley. And that's where he was going to go. And we talked about Lot's choice. didn't turn out as well as he'd hoped. And Abram was going to be left with whatever Lot didn't take. Abram was the one that God had promised, I'm going to give you this land. And yet it was Abram who'd said to Lot, you choose, you take whatever you want. That's where we pick up this morning. Genesis 13, verses 14 through 18 It says, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent, came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram gives Lot the first choice, the best choice, and God appears to him. And the first thing God does is this. God affirms to Abram here, after Lot's choice, he affirms to Abram the same promises he had made to him in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, if you remember, God had said, Hey, Abe, leave your country, leave your father's area, Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. So in Genesis 12, God had promised Abram the land, and he promised him descendants. And nationhood in Genesis 12 is both of those. It's people, it's descendants, and it's the geography they're going to live in. Now, some commentators, if you read about this, they think Abram blew it when he gave Lot the choice. They see it that Abram was jeopardizing God's promise to give Abram and his descendants the land. And, and I think they missed the point. Abram gave Lot the first choice, and the first thing God does when he appears to him is to reaffirm the promises he'd already made. He gave Lot the choice, and God shows up and says, Abram, you've lost nothing. The promise of the land and the promise of descendants, they're still yours. Abram gave freely away, and in giving freely away, he lost nothing. Because God comes back and says, Abe, the promises, they're still good. They're still yours. You sort of gave away the Jordan River Valley. Lot went there and slid down the the river valley, we said, and ends up at Sodom in the end. But in giving away the best choice, God says, you haven't lost a thing. Now, just like Elwood Dowd in Harvey, 
I'm kind of curious when I read about Abram and say, what gave Abram the ability to be this generous, this kind, this thoughtful? What allowed him to do that towards Lot? What was his life like? How was it going? What, what let him be this free? And I think there's a couple reasons. And the first is this. Just like Elwood Dowd, I think Abram really had made a decision about what kind of a man and what kind of a person he was going to be. And I think Abram really did value peace with others, and he valued people over possessions. So if you go back in verse 8, which we didn't read this morning, but when trouble arises, Abe goes to Lot and says this, Let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Abram's not concerned about the cattle or the sheep or the goats. He's not concerned about the water or the land. He says, Lot, this is the deal I'm concerned about. I don't want there to be strife between you and me. And I don't want there to be trouble or strife between our servants, the folks that are taking care of all this good stuff for us. So that was Abram's motivation. First, like Elwood Dowd, he'd made a decision about what kind of a person he was going to be. He valued people over material possessions. And you never see in the Genesis accounts, you never see Abram grabbing for wealth. You never see him grasping things for himself. That's not where his heart was at. He was more concerned with people and with God than he was material possession. Abram was, in Elwood Dowd language, he was a pleasant man. He was a gracious man. He was generous to others and kind and thoughtful because he'd chosen to be. Those represented his values. The second reason, though, and the place that I want to park us this morning, I think, is this. Abram had promises from God, and I believe it was those promises that ultimately gave Abram the peace and the ability, <clears throat> the perspective, if you will, that allowed him to be gracious and meek towards others. In other words, Abram is counting on God's promises, and so he doesn't have to worry about grasping things for himself. God's promises gave Abe peace. They allowed him out of that peace to be kind and thoughtful towards Lot. And I think he knew that he could afford to be generous with Lot because he knew God would still keep those promises. You don't have to know very many Christians to know most of us don't live life very well. That most of us aren't necessarily characterized by kindness generosity, thoughtfulness. Most of us are still fairly fractured, insecure people. And you see that in Lot, but you don't see it in Abram. And I love the confidence Abram has to live big is because he knows who God is, he's made a decision, and he's counting on the promises God has made to him to fulfill his life. He's counting on God's promises. Psalm 138.8 says this, David, someone else who knew God fairly well, said this, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. This is a verse I've quoted to myself many times over the years. Abram's got promises from God. He's counting on God to fulfill them. David says, I know this about God, that whatever my need is, whatever the issues are in my life, God will take care of them. God will take care of whatever concerns me. And Abram here is a great example of a person trusting in the promises of God. And that's why, at least in part, and I think significantly so, it's why he's free to live big and be generous. 
if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, you and I have promises too, and we, we are called to live this uh, selfless, generous, gracious, kind, thoughtful kind of living you see in Elwood Dowd or in the life of Abram. Let me read just a couple of verses about this kind of call to us. Two are out of Proverbs 11, back to back in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. This is a picture of someone, he takes his possession or whatever is in his hand, and he scatters it abroad. He's releasing it out of his hand. And what's the effect? Well, he increases all the more. We're thinking he's getting rid of things, but this says the impact or the effect of that is actually he doesn't lose. He gains. He gets more. Or the following verse, verse 25, it says, the generous man will be prosperous. Now, if you think about being generous, you're taking your goods, whatever it is, and you're getting rid of them. You're giving them away to someone else. So maybe this should read, the generous man or the generous woman or the generous person will lose all they have. They'll give it all away. But no, this says the generous man will be prosperous. The person who gives things away will themselves actually increase their own possessions. It follows with, he who waters will himself be watered. Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where you've said, I don't feel like I have any friends, or I don't have many friends, or I don't have good friends? This is a great verse for you. He who waters will be watered. (laughs) This means if you take time and energy to take care of others, you'll be taken care of. If we try and grab the stuff in life so that we feel significant and that we meet all our needs, we'll still feel insignificant and needy. But Proverbs says, if I'll take the time and the energy and have the perspective that I'm going to do what's in my power to meet the needs of others, my needs will be met. In other words, in this process of giving away, like Abram did in this story, I don't lose, I gain. And Christians are called to this kind of life. We don't worry about the stuff. We're called to scatter and be generous and water. And when we do, just like Abram, the fact is we don't lose in the end. We gain. We don't lose anything. We gain. You see the same thought Jesus in Luke 6, 38, when he says, give, sounds like you're losing. Sounds like Abram giving Lot the first choice. Give, he says, and it will be given to you. When you're generous, you end up being on the receiving end as well. And in Jesus in Luke 6.38, he says it'll be like someone poured, I think of grain in this agricultural economy when I read these words, poured into your lap, good measure, pressed down, shaken together. In other words, all the voids are filled, running over. So the biblical model for me having my needs met and me being filled or feeling significant or that I've got my place, it's not to grab a hold of the stuff for myself. It's to be kind and generous and gracious towards others and I'll find my needs met in the process. So if you know Christ, you can afford to be gracious. You can afford to be free with what you have to give away because God's the one behind that promise to take care of your needs At the end of the day, the same thing is true about being meek. Uh, 
you know, for Americans, we've, we've got the model of the, the cowboy or the frontiersman or whatever. He's the guy that grabs the gusto. He's self-sufficient, etc. <clears throat> this is not a concept that the Scripture highlights for us as a model. It does highlight this model of being meek. Now, depending on what your thoughts of the word are, this may sound good or not so good, but meek biblically means we don't grab things for ourselves. Meek means essentially we're not self-serving. We're not trying to lay hold of things in life for ourselves. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the gentle. Now think about this for just a second. Blessed are the meek, some translations say. It's the same thing. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the ones who don't try and go out and get anything for themselves. Blessed are those who don't try and grab the good stuff for themselves like Lot. Why is that? It sounds like they're losing. Blessed are the meek. They get nothing. They didn't grab anything, so they get nothing. No. Blessed are the meek because they they get the whole earth. They get everything. They didn't lay hold of anything for themselves. And God says, well, I've got something for you. Here, take the planet. It's yours. I love this. God's economy is upside down to our natural inclinations. So Jesus said the meek who don't go through life trying to grab things for themselves, God's pleased to give them everything. Abram got a little corner of Palestine. God says to the meek today, I'll give you everything. I'll give you the earth. I'll give you the planet. I'll give you more than that. You'll rule the the universe with me forever. Blessed are the meek. Those who know Christ can afford to be meek. We're going to get everything. We don't have to worry about things now. Laying hold and finding significance. There's a great passage in James 3 that incorporates the same thing about peace and gentleness or meekness. And it's in the context of wisdom. Here's a good uh, barometer for you. If you look in your life and say, am I a meek person? Biblically meek, appropriately meek. Am I a meek person? Do I practice God's kind of wisdom? And it's this. Ask yourself this. Is there strife in my life as a norm? Is there strife in the relationships I have with the people around me in any kind of general, regular pattern? And if there is, it might be because you're not practicing God's kind of wisdom. So in James 3... James says there's a kind of wisdom that actually comes from the world. It's demonic and it's destructive. And what it produces is strife. It produces the kind of strife Abram had with Lot. But then James talks about a different kind of wisdom, God's kind of wisdom. Excuse me. And he says, the wisdom from above is first pure. It's not pretentious. It's not pretending to be one thing. It's pure. Then it's peaceable. God's wisdom produces peace in the lives of the people who practice it, it's gentle. If you're practicing God's kind of wisdom, you concede to others whenever you can. You avoid strife. You do what Abram did. You say, let there be no strife. Peace is my goal here. Most of the time we're trying to say, it's my way or the highway. It has nothing to do with God's provision, God's plan, God's will. It's us practicing a worldly kind of wisdom out of our own fractured sense of needing significance or whatever. But James says if we practice God's kinds of wisdom, it produces peace. Produces peace in the relationships we have with others around us. That comes out of an attitude of meekness. Not grabbing for ourselves. Not pushing to the front of the line. 
not making lots kind of choices, grabbing the best for ourselves. Meekness produces this kind of peace in our life and then in the relationships we have around us. So if you look at your life and you say, strife is sort of a normal pattern in the people I know, ask yourself whose kind of wisdom you're practicing. You can afford to be meek towards others. You can afford to be peaceable towards others because the meek inherit the earth. Now, there's a sense in which the degree of uh, satisfaction or significance we feel we might be able to get would be tied to the value of the promises. If we're talking about uh, being able to see our lives as filled and at peace because God's made us promises, it would depend on the kind of promises that God made to us, wouldn't it? That would affect how we looked at life. And if we look at Abram's life, Abram had some pretty good promises. So Abram was given the land, even though in his lifetime he only had a, a, a cemetery plot. He was promised the land. He was promised children. And this was a big deal to an old guy, right, who had no children. And that's really all he wants, you know, as he talks to God throughout their interchanges. Abram's after kids. So God says, you're going to have kids. You're going to have lots of kids. So that's a good promise. Uh, he promises them a future nation, not just a few children, not just a few descendants. Your children, they'll, they'll comprise a nation, lots of kids. And ultimately, he says to Abram, you're going to be a blessing to all the earth. From your descendant, we know, by the way, application, this is ultimately through Jesus himself, the ultimate descendant of Abram. You're going to be a blessing to all the earth. So Abe had some pretty good promises, land, children, nation, significance, we'd say, great significance. Those are the promises Abe had. Those are good. And if God maybe came to us today and said, hey, I'm going to promise you, let's say, business success, a good family, I don't know what, the American dream, let's say, or the dream in the West, you know, all the good stuff and the shiny cars, et cetera. And God says, that's what I'm going to bless you with. We might say, hey, pretty good, pretty good promises. We, we can live with that. You know, the truth is, those would be too small. Those promises would be way too small for God to make to us today, way too insignificant. So as good as the promises were to Abram from God that gave him the peace and the ability to deal kindly and graciously with others, knowing God was going to keep those promises, if you're a Christian today, if you know Christ as your Savior, you know Him through faith, you've got inherently much, much, much greater promises than Abram had. I mean, God gave Abram sort of a corner of Palestine, and, and He sort of gives us the moon by comparison. And Second Peter 1, Pete says that we have great and magnificent promises, better than the land. <clears throat> I won't go into this, but in Hebrews, briefly, this digression sort of, sorry. Hebrews was a letter written to early Jewish Christians, and life was hard for them. They were, they were losing their possessions. They were being persecuted. Life was hard. And they were being tempted to leave Christ, to leave Christianity, to go back to Judaism. And so this letter was written to them to tell them, listen, there's really nothing to go back to because Jesus supersedes everything you knew. He's better than anything you had under the law of Moses and at the temple. And in chapter 8, verse 6, there's sort of a summary sentence. And he says, of Jesus, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. That's his priesthood. Jesus has a better priesthood than they had under Moses, the Levites, and Aaron's descendants. He has a better priesthood. He is a better mediator of a better covenant. That's the new covenant we live under today. 
which has been enacted on better promises. In other words, when you look back in history to Jews under the law or Abram in his day, compared to that, Hebrew says, we have better promises. Abe had some good promises. But we've got better promises. And think of this. <clears throat> a tangent, but in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus was talking to people in his day about John the Baptist. You know, because they were trying to figure out who is John the Baptist? What's his significance? What's his role? What do we make of him? And among the other things Jesus said about John the Baptist was this. He says, of those born of women, no one has been more important than John the Baptist. Now think about that for just a second. John the Baptist, Jesus says, is the most important person who's ever been born up to his day. So if we sort of go back on the history line, that means the prophets. That means Solomon and David. That means Moses. And that means Abram too, doesn't it? Jesus says of John the Baptist, no one ever born of women has been greater than John the Baptist. But then he says something odd. He says, but the one who is the least, the, the lowest in the kingdom of God is more important, has a higher rank than John the Baptist. So when Jesus came to the earth, he came to institute a kingdom and he says he still will. Right? It's still going to come. Jesus is going to return from heaven to the earth. Sometime, we're not sure when, but he's going to. And when he does, he institutes his kingdom. But for Christians, for those who know Christ now, we're already in that kingdom, aren't we? We're, we're Christ's brothers. We're part of his bride, the church, but we're also members of his kingdom. We're in his kingdom right now. And we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And this was the big difference between anybody born before the resurrection and those born and entering into the kingdom after the resurrection. What's the difference? Well, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives in us and with us. This was not true in the past. The Spirit would come on people. You know, in Psalm 51, David said, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God had taken His Holy Spirit from King Saul before David. But that was different than what we have today. From Pentecost on... When the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born, all of us have the Holy Spirit of God when we trust in Jesus. And so compared to the greatest guy in all of history from Jesus' birth back, John the Baptist, Jesus says, every one of us, we have a higher rank than John the Baptist. Wow. It's better for us than the highest guy you could think of from the old way of things. That's our position. Do you feel like that's true of you? So you read about a biblical character, some hero of the faith, and Jesus says, you have a higher rank than that person does in my kingdom. This is mind-blowing. I don't think Christians get it most of the time. Let me go over just a few promises that we have as Christians living in the age of the Spirit today. Just a few promises, a few areas where God's given us some promises that should enable us to live life like Abram did, which means we can live graciously. We can live with kindness, with thoughtfulness towards others. We can be free. We can scatter because we know we'll increase all the more. We know that God will take care of those things that concern us. I've got just a few areas. You guys would probably come up with your own. There's tons of promises to Christians in the New Testament. Here's just a couple of areas. The first is this, the promise of eternal life. You know, I don't care who you are or how smart you are or how long you live. We know we're going to die. 
there's very few on the earth who's ever lived who won't die. Paul says there will be a few at the rapture. Hope I'm there. Hope we're there. But we're going to die. And so for every human on the earth, the question is, what happens when we die? Where do I go? What happens to me? And all of us also have this innate sense that we are less than we should be. We're not all that God made us to be. I don't care if you're an atheist. You know you're not what you should be. So there's this whole question about judgment and what happens when I die? Where do I go? How does this all shake out? What's the end? For Christians, there's this promise of eternal life. This means literally life to the ages, life that never ends on one hand. But in Jesus' economy, it also means qualitatively that which we call life. So John 17, 3, real life is to know Christ. It's to know Christ. So it's, it's abundant life on one hand, and it's life that never ends on the other. So in John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says this, I give eternal life to them. He's talking about his sheep, those who've heard his voice. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Some people argue eternal security, etc. Can you lose your salvation? Guys, there's no way you can lose your salvation. If you've ever been Christ's sheep, you're his sheep forever. And I love this picture. He says this. If I took a marble and I put it in my hand and then I close my hand and then I take my other hand and I put it over it. And if I ask my child to come up and get the marble out, they couldn't do it because I'm bigger and stronger. Jesus says of his sheep, they're in his hand, the omnipotent God, the son's hand. They're in his hand. And then he says, the father's hand is over that hand. What chance do you think there is of that person ever losing that position they have in Christ? Can't happen. Can't happen. And by the way, I can't tell you how many Christians, if you don't settle this question, if you think there's something you can do, once you've trusted Christ, you know that you belong to Him. If you think there's something you can do to send your way out of God's kingdom, you'll live under this fear the rest of your life. And this is, this is the fear uh, Hebrews 2 uh, says Jesus came to do away with the fear of death. If Christ is your Savior, if the Holy Spirit's in you, you've been stamped. Ephesians 1 says you've been stamped by God as His possession. You're His forever. They will never perish. They're in Jesus' hand. They're in the Father's hand. You're good to go. If you solve this issue in your life, if you haven't already, This alone gives us incredible freedom because you no longer have to work for your salvation. You no longer have to worry if God's really your father. You no longer have to worry, did I sin once too many so that my dad won't take me back? We're good to go. If you've got eternal life, if you've trusted Christ, you're good to go. Romans 8, 28, I won't read, or Romans 8, 38 and 39 say the same thing. And I love it there. Paul in this language, on one hand, he says, Um, that everything that happens in the life of a Christian, God turns around and uses for good. God causes all things to work together for good, he says. But then in the same context, he says, oh, and by the way, sometimes Christians are like sheep being slaughtered. Then what do you make of that? I'm a sheep to be slaughtered. But then Paul says, oh, by the way, we're more than conquerors. Even when it looks like we're sheep for slaughter, We're more than conquerors. Why, Paul? Well, he says, because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Go up, go down, angels, demons, things present, things to come. He sort of defines all of reality and says, nothing can separate you from Christ and his love. These are promises to every Christian. You've got eternal life. You'll never perish. 
Jesus is your shepherd. He's called you by name. You followed him. You're his. That's where you're going. Your future is heaven. I can say that because the scripture does. It's quite clear. I know people argue about this, but it's crystal clear to me. And once you know this, you can get over living life fearfully. John says in 1 John, I believe it's 4, he says that when we fear there's this thought of judgment, I'm going to get hammered. I've done wrong and I know it. There's this fear of judgment. For Christians, we know our sins have been fully covered by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're good to go. This is one of those areas of promise. If I know I'm saved, if I know Christ is my shepherd, I'm free. Living all my life under pretense and fear and judgment, I'm good to go. I have eternal life. God also gives us this promise of never being alone. Sunday school this morning touched on this. You remember when you read the Genesis account of creation? God makes everything and and every statement is, it was good. It was good. It was good, it was good, it was good until he gets to Adam alone in the garden. And what's he say? He says it's not good for the man to be alone. God always designed Adam to be one half of a whole. And so, you know, he, he shuffles Eve out and we find Adam's now complete. Adam's complete. But humans know, we know that we are not adequate in and of ourselves. Now, on a practical level, God has given the institution of marriage. And for most of us, God calls us to be married. And we, we find a kind of completeness through marriage in great ways that God's, God's blessed. That's God's arrangement. It's His design. But guys, there's no way a spouse, no matter how good they are on Valentine's or any other day, there's no way a spouse can actually fulfill the need for significance and wholeness and completion that God means to fill Himself. Another person cannot do that. Oftentimes, maybe in the dating or the courting periods of our life, we think that good-looking gal, that handsome guy, they are going to make my life complete. They can be part of that, and man, it's good. It's good. It's great. You know, my goodness. It's great. But at the end of the day, it's incomplete as far as actually filling us up with the kind of significance and sense of completeness that God means us to have. So for Christians, Jesus gives this promise that you'll never be alone. If you, get never, if you never get married, Jesus still says, you'll never be alone. And if you're on an island by yourself, stranded for the rest of your life, Jesus says, you'll never be alone. Why? Just a couple of verses, John 14, 16, and 17. On the night before Jesus is crucified, he knows physically he's leaving his friends, his disciples. He's going to check out. He'll be gone. So he says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that means someone just like me, that he may be with you forever. Later, Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you on your own, by yourself. No, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He has been with you, John says, now he's going to be in you. In other words, for Christians, we have God himself dwelling inside us forever. We never have to have this sense that we're all alone. You don't have to feel lonely. Now, I know God uses people to represent Himself sometimes, and I'm not minimizing the degree to which we need the support and the love and the affirmation of our families, our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is huge too. But guys, no other person can ever take away the sense of aloneness if you don't already have it filled through Christ. And we've got this promise that the Holy Spirit, God Himself, with us forever, always. 
We never have to feel alone or lonely in any kind of ultimate sense. Hebrews 13.5 says the same thing. Great verse thinking of Abram also. He says there, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Don't, don't be grabbing the money, he says. Be content with what you have. Why? Because Jesus has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Same words almost out of Matthew 28. I'm with you always. To the end of the age, I'm with you. Christians never have to be alone. We have this promise we can count on. There's also a promise of peace. Uh, the economy's been down. There's wars. There's trouble around the world. You know, all of us, this always goes up and down for anybody in any, any stage of history in life. Life's never what we would want it to be. It's not as peaceful as we wish it were. But Jesus gives us these promises related to peace. So again, in John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, Peace is mine to give. And I'm giving peace. This settled sense of I'm okay, God's okay, life is okay, the world's okay, whether it is on the outside or not. The Christian has a promise of God's peace within, no matter the circumstances that are going on. We don't have to have someone else do certain things so that we can be at peace. We have peace. It's as if Jesus takes our glass, fills it up with water and says, there it is, it's tangible, it's real. We've got the promise of peace from Christ. You see the same thing in Philippians 4. This actually talks about us doing something related to this. Paul there says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, pray and supplication, sort of the sense that I pour out my heart to God about these things that concern me that I might otherwise worry about. Jesus says, don't worry, but if you're tempted to, pray. Pour out your heart to God about those things. And what will happen? Well, the peace of God which passes comprehension. This means you can't get your mind around it. It's not necessarily related to you figuring things out. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christians have the promise of peace no matter what's going on in life. We have peace as an option, as a possession within us because God's promised it to us. And then the promise of God meeting our needs. We tend to focus on our needs first, and I mean our physical needs first. And generally, I think they're actually last. They should be the last, and I've sort of held the last here. God does promise to meet our needs. And, you know, in an economy that turns south, I think I heard Michigan the other day, unemployment rate of almost 15%. That's a lot of people out of work. You can imagine. I'm sure there's a lot of Christians there too. But you know what? Among that 15% or so or our 8% or whatever it is, I hope the Christians in that unemployed group aren't sitting at home fretting. I hope they're saying to God as they pray, Lord, you've promised to meet our needs. And we look to you to see what that's going to be like. We refuse to worry, Philippians 4. We've prayed about it. We've committed it to you. In Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul says, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will provide for your needs. We tend to get all hung up on um, mortgages, food, car payments, whatever, whatever costs money. That's typically where we start, we're worried about. It's sort of in God's priorities. It's not at the top of the list. It's down near the bottom of the list, down near the bottom. But even in that area, God says through Paul, I'll take care of your needs. In fact, back to Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't worry, saying, what will you eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? 
<clears throat> when he says the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, this is a slam. This means the guys who don't know God, the guys who don't have the resource you have, that's what they're after. They're after the stuff. They're worried about the stuff. They're grabbing the stuff. He says, but for you who know God, you don't have to do that. You can put God and his things first and you can trust him to provide for all your needs. And he will. I don't know if you guys ever have the opportunity to do this sort of where you hit the brick wall and you say, Lord, what am I going to do? Or you know God is requiring you to give up something and you're saying, Lord, I don't know if I can do it. You know what inevitably happens in these cases? When you obey, God comes through in spades and you're like, man, why was it so hard? Why did I make it so hard? Why didn't I just trust and go down the road and trust that God was going to make it right? Because he does. He does. Kathy and I have faced issues like this in our life repeatedly. And I can't tell you the peace that it gives to say to God, Lord, we refuse to worry about this. We're going to trust you to keep your promises. We're good to go. And we don't have to be manipulative towards others. Would you please meet my need? It doesn't have to be about us grabbing it for ourselves like Lot again. We can be with Abram. We can be kind, generous, gracious towards others, saying, Lord, we trust you to meet our needs. God has given us, just like Abe, how can Abram be so generous with Lot? Because he's got promises. And he knows God can't lie. And he knows God's going to take care of those promises. We have promises. We have better promises than Abe ever dreamed of. The least in God's kingdom today, Jesus says, is greater in rank than the greatest person in all the Old Testament. You don't have to worry about finding significance. You've got it. You don't have to worry about peace. You don't have to worry about financial provision. Not saying times don't get skinny sometimes. God uses that to get our attention and keep us focused on Him. But you see what I'm saying? We've got promises that should liberate us from living small, grasping, self-centered lives. We should, with Abram, we should count on those promises and we should live big. We should be characterized by kindness and graciousness towards others. At the end of the movie Harvey, Dr. Chumley, this misguided, self-serving psychiatrist who's in and out of the whole movie and play, he sees Harvey leaving with Elwood Dowd. And sort of like Lot, <clears throat> he wants something for himself. So he says to Elwood Dowd, he said, could you have Harvey stay here with me? Can I have Harvey instead of you? And so Elwood Dowd says, uh, well, whatever he wants to do is perfectly all right with me. No, I don't mind. He says, Harvey knows I don't mind. Of course, when he turns away, he looks just a little disappointed. And as he's walking through the gates of the sanatorium, the gate opens on its own. We don't see him, but we know Harvey's coming through. And Elwood Dowd says, what's going on? I thought you were staying with Dr. Chumley. And the rabbit speaks in words we can't hear, of course. But when Elwood Dowd responds to the rabbit, we know what the rabbit said, the puka. Elwood Dowd says, well, thank you, Harvey. I prefer you too. So Elwood Dowd gave away freely and he lost nothing. And we're called to do the same. We can bless and be blessed in the doing. We can scatter and increase all the more. We can live lives of blessing and grace because like Abram, God's promises give us God's peace.
You can count on that. You can take that to the bank. And if we as Christians can simply lay hold of this thing about, I'm going to trust God for what he said, it will revolutionize your life. Start with any single element in your life and say, Lord, I haven't trusted you in this area. You start with one promise of God and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you for that. And you watch and see, it will revolutionize the way you see life. Lord, you've given this this incredibly high calling. You've reached down from on high. You've saved us. Lord, Jesus has made us through faith and through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, he's made us co-heirs with him. Our future, our eternity is to rule and reign this universe with King Jesus, one who now says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, his family members, his bride, his church, his people. Father, I pray that you would help us to lift up our eyes and gain sight even of one of the promises that we can count on from you, Lord, and that that would begin a process of us like Abram living a life characterized by faith, by trusting you, by taking you at your word, Lord, by praying your word back to you that those promises you've given us are good and that we're going to live by them and that we're going to count on them. And Lord, that we're going to shun these lives that we tend to live worried, self-centered, self-serving, little mean lives, Lord, fractured lives by those who don't know you. Help us to lift up our eyes, Lord, and gain a sense of who we are in Christ, the high, high calling you've got on our lives and to the incredible promises you've given us. Help us to start living like those who know you. In Jesus' name, amen.